Well, we've been talking this month about repentance from a biblical perspective. Um, and it's, uh, it's an important thing, church. We're always aware when we, when we preach the word from this pulpit, some people are listening, some people are taking it in, and uh, some are responding and some are letting it fly over their heads. We, we know that. We, we, we understand that. But this is one of those things that we have tried to give a level of interest to or a level of intensity to that we're, uh, we, it's because we want to be sure you get it. At whatever way the Holy Spirit is going to communicate it to you, whatever way the Holy Spirit is going to deal with you, uh, I trust that you are engaged with us uh, as we talk about this subject of repentance. And as you know, the pastoral team is calling this fellowship to a season or a time of repentance, perfectly in line with the Jewish holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, for those of you who might not know, the Jewish New Year, it began this past Friday night, and it will conclude tonight at sundown. Yom Kippur follows shortly thereafter. The Day of Atonement begins next Sunday evening at sunset and concludes the following uh, evening, Monday, uh, at sunset. And the days in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are known as the Days of Awe. And for the Jewish people, traditionally, those are days of repentance, uh, and they are days of both repentance and renewal, often accompanied by fasting and certainly by prayer. So you might say, you know, have, have we always given this much attention to the Jewish holidays here? Well, it depends. Maybe not the way we're trying to give such intense focus to it this year. I take you back to when Pastor Des was our senior pastor. Now, you all knew him, and you know that he would have simply called himself a student of Jewish history and tradition and culture. All the rest of us would have considered him a highly esteemed scholar on such matters. Am I telling the truth? And so, and most of his teaching and preaching to us was based on intensive biblical understanding of Judaism, and he was faithful to that. So it may not be typical of us to give the level of attention to it that we're giving this year, but we are in a different year. We're in a different season. We are living in unprecedented days in this country with the polarization, the likes of which we have, most of us, have never seen before in our lifetime. And I, I don't have to rehearse that again, but I'll just to remind you, we're polarized politically, very polarized. We're very polarized racially. We have one extreme, the other extreme, and a little bit in between. We are polarized culturally in any way you want to look at it. We're polarized pandemically. That's not really a word, but it ought to be a word now. Uh, but we are polarized in our feelings and our understanding and, and our values on all of those things. And the net effect of this time season of division and polarization has certainly brought tension. I would even go so far as to say it has brought a measure of corruption to our human community. And the reality of it is, whether I like it or not, the church has not been exempt. The church is not exempt from this. And so here we sit in the year 2020. And what we see in measures that we have not seen even in the past is discord between husband and wife. Uh, harshness between brother and sibling or brother and sister, nation against nation. 
Relationships of any kind becoming almost impossible with tension like we've not seen before. And so these are the reasons why, some of the reasons why, there is the need for repentance. It's an elevated need for repentance, which is why we are elevating our call for repentance and the need to turn back to God. Is there an amen in the house today? And so what is repentance? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and Dr. Marty did a fabulous job in what she presented to us last Sunday. Repentance is, according to the Hebrew and the Greek put together, is the changing of your mind. You're walking along, you're going down life's path, you've established your value system, you've established your patterns and your rhythms and your way of thinking and your way of living, and you suddenly realize, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when conviction comes your way, You have an understanding. I am thinking, feeling, walking, doing something that is not in alignment with the will and the purposes and the way of God and his holiness. So there is a changing of the mind. And then having changed the mind, then there is a turning to go in the opposite direction. I'm going to use a fancy word on you here, but it's one I think it's good to know. Because our lostness in this regard, our, our ability to, um, to get off the rails, as we might say today, our, our propensity to let our hearts wander, this lostness is pictured for us in the primeval hamartiology, which is, that's the fancy word for the doctrine of sin. And we see it given to us all from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11. How the curse of sin was given, it was brought on by that which took place initially by Adam and Eve. And then it developed further and further and further. And this doctrine of sin is called hamartiology, where it is shown that we have corrupted and we continue to corrupt God's good world by trying to be simply our own gods and goddesses. That's essentially what it has. I just got to hit you straight with it and tell you exactly what the word tells us. The good gift even and, and the ability to go to work has been turned into drudgery. The relationship between the sexes has become a battle. The beauty and fertility of God's earth have been lost to thorns and thistles. And that's all because of the curse of of sin over all of these things. And I could mention many more lies God's curse on our sin and God's sentence of death because of our rebellion. Church, I'm simply saying, not trying to drag you down this morning because we have a goal that I'm going to tell you about in a second, but I'm simply saying this, we have much for which we need to repent. Now, why am I being so pointed with it? Why am I drawing it out to the point that you may even be getting tired of hearing us talk about it? It's because I don't want anyone to think that anyone in this room or anyone watching this online, and certainly starting with the one who's speaking right now, that we can escape the ability for God to shine his searchlight within our heart and say, I need to put my finger on that. That has got to change for you to be in alignment with my, with my will. It is time for each and every one of us to take the filters off as we look at our own lives and look at the condition of our own souls to see what God might be saying to us that we cleanse ourselves and we purify ourselves and we adopt the position which absolutely says, God, put your searchlight upon me. See if there be any wicked way in me 
so that I can be in line with you and I can be walking in harmony with you. Let nothing come between my soul and the Savior. And church, this is the time. This is the season. And it's the right thing for the church to do now. We have already entered into the days of awe, as I said a moment ago for this year. And as a church fellowship, we are, as has been announced to you, we're setting aside a 90-minute period of time this Saturday evening. It's special. It's unique. It's different. It will be different than what we even do typically on a Sunday night, as wonderful as that is. And we'll be gathering tonight for prayer. But this Saturday evening is a time to come and engage in a unique time of prayer and repentance, different than we have done before. And we're asking all of you to attend this Yom Kippur prayer night this coming Saturday from 6 to 7.30 in this very room here in the sanctuary. And so the appeal goes to you from me like this. If you are at all concerned about the spiritual well-being of this nation, is that anybody in the room today? If you are at all anxious about the general condition of the church of the Lord Jesus, if you have personal concerns about your own standing in the sight of God, if you believe it's time for God's people to rid itself of all idols and return wholly and completely back to God, then this time that we're going to spend Saturday evening from 6 to 7.30, you will want to respond to this call from our pastoral team to dedicate simply 90 minutes to a time of prayer, asking the Lord to forgive us, to cleanse us, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us, open our eyes, let us see the things that we have somehow become blinded to as we continue to walk life's journey, asking God to forgive us and calling on the Lord to reveal to each of us what he would have us to do as he, as he deals with each of us individually. Let the church say amen. amen. When it comes to looking at this need for repentance, there are so many places in scripture to which we could turn. I was reading in our week two of Immersed Bible in Hosea, and I thought we could preach from that, we could preach from this. I found all kinds of places that we could draw from to, to once again underscore our need as a fellowship for repentance and as a nation. One of the reasons the pastoral team has asked us to even repeat the reading of the Immersed Book of the Prophets is because it is full, chock full of examples of the waywardness of the children of Israel. And they would come back to God. They would repent. And then they would wander again, wander again. And how easily they could allow their hearts to be turned away from God. The next fascination came along. The next thing that caught their attention came along. And it immediately became an idol. And God said, it has to go. And how often then God had to send a prophet. That's why we are rereading this, this book how often God had to send a prophet to warn them of what they were doing, how they were behaving, how they were thinking, and how their hearts had turned away from God. And a holy, righteous God simply could not tolerate such. And I, I will admit to you, it's, it's not always easy to read. In fact, sometimes it's, it's uncomfortable reading, but that's okay. We need sometimes uncomfortable, uncomfortable reading. It may not always be easy to read, but it certainly is always important to read it. Because in the reading, 
Though it appear to be harsh at times, you will still see the very heart of God and his longing and his desire, his pining for his people to be obedient to him and to follow his ways. Why? Because his real desire is to pour out his blessing and favor upon them. And in the reading, you come to understand what pleases God as opposed to that which ignites his wrath. And how important it is for us to repent and recalibrate and realign our lives according to his word. So after deliberating on many passages, and I literally have looked at several from which I was considering sharing today, I've landed on Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, which was actually prompted in my heart about a month ago, but I'm just now getting to it. Joel chapter 2 is our text. And I want to say this to you. I told you I have a goal, and I do. I so want you to leave this sanctuary today with hope in your heart for a bright tomorrow because there is hope in Jesus. I so want us to leave with a renewed understanding of how God longs for his people and the, the, the length and the breadth he would go to to woo us and to draw us back to him, how he longs for us. Lord, I just ask your grace to be upon that which we share today as we so often say, give wings to our words. And Holy Spirit, do what you do so wonderfully well to communicate to the hearts of people today the truth of your word. We simply open your book and we read what you have given us. We ask that you will allow us to not be hearers only of your word, but be doers. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our text will be Joel chapter 2. And the actual text will just be three verses. Verse 12, 13, and 14. And I will get to that. But to put those three verses in context, you need to know something about the first 11 verses of the second chapter of Joel. The chapter begins with a call of alarm to the people, which is that call is emphasizing the nearness of an invasion that is coming. That call of alarm is coming from a trumpet or actually it appears to be that the word trumpet is used to describe actually what we would know as a ram's horn blown by a watchman to alert the people of great danger. The appropriate response to this sound of alarm was fear, especially in this instance, since the day of the Lord was coming. And we have to understand it well. So let me read it. I'm going to give you the first 11 verses before we get to the text. Sound the trumpet in Jerusalem. Raise the alarm on my holy mountain. Let everyone tremble in fear because the day of the Lord is upon us. It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and deep blackness. Suddenly, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a great and mighty army appears. Nothing like it has been seen before or will ever be seen again. Fire burns in front of this army and flames follow after them. Ahead of them, the land lies as beautiful as the Garden of Eden. But behind them is nothing but desolation. Not one thing escapes. They look like horses. They charge forward like war horses. Look at them as they leap along the mountaintops. Listen to the noise they make, like the rumbling of chariots. 
like the roar of fire sweeping across a field of stubble, or like a mighty army moving into battle. Fear grips all the people. Every face grows pale with terror. The attackers march like warriors and scale city walls like soldiers. Straight forward they march, never breaking rank, never jostling each other. Each moves in exactly the right position. This strong, uh, formidable, formidable army is strong. They break through defenses without missing a step. They swarm over the city and run along its walls. They enter all the houses, climbing like thieves then through the windows. The earth quakes as they advance, and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars no longer shine. And guess what? The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is his mighty army, and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? Why all of this? Why this extreme show of force? Why all of this destruction? Why all of this? Simply because God's people have lived in rebellion. They've strayed from the God who has given them literally everything they have. Their hearts have turned away from him. So does God, a holy God, have the right to gather his troops and bring destruction? Yes, he does. Is he calling for a return to holy and righteous living? Of course he is. Is there a call on the church of the living Lord Jesus even today to return to holy living? Is there a call to return to holiness and to righteous living? The answer to that is a resounding yes. And then I come to the text. I have to read you those first 11 verses for you to see the intensity of the heart of God toward that which is taking place within his people. And then the text says this, verse 12. That is why the Lord says, and I'm going to tell you what the original, because it's important that we understand the original Hebrew right here. But even now. Would you say that with me? Now. now this version says, turn to me now. The original says, but even now. Turn to me now while there is time. Thank God there's still time. Thank God he is willing to say, turn to me now while there is time and give me your hearts. Come with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, which is the custom, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God. Return to the Lord your God. Realign yourself with God's will and way and purpose. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is merciful. He is compassionate. He is slow to get angry. He is filled with unfailing love. And our God is eager to relent and not to punish that's the heart of the God that we serve. Come on, give him praise today.
Verse 14, who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Perhaps you will be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord your God as before. Now give me just a few minutes to unpack this, to understand this text of verses 12 through 14 a little better. This passage offers us a glimpse of the fierceness of the Lord at sin as he marshals his troops, the intensity of it. We tend to be glib about it. I just did that. Everybody does. We become glib about it. I just watched that. Anyway, you know, it didn't affect me. We become glib and, and casual. Well, we... Well, we did that. I, it's probably wrong. I know, I know that I, we shouldn't be living together, not married. I know this. I can't start going down the list. I, I know this, but you know, it's just kind of the way things are today. And God says, no. God says, you've been called as a people to be holy. You've been called as a people to live righteously. And he stands ready to unleash that army in full force against, yes, even the people of God. And then we come to the 12th verse, which we just read, and it says this, and please let me put it in the context that I've studied intently in the Hebrew, but even now turn to me while there is time. Say those first words again, but even now. One more time. Turn to me while there is time. It is absolutely necessary that we understand what the original Hebrew is saying here. I'll be honest with you, most translations have missed the force and the impact of the opening words. I'm privileged to have almost 60 versions of scripture in my electronic library. I found only two that contain these words, but even now, but it is what is correct. Though very few translations say it this way, verse 12 begins with, but even now. The but being translated, for those of you who are either English majors or you are, you are nerds like me who love parts of speech and examining the English language, I love it. I wish I were better at it. Some of you are terrific at it. But the word but being translated from what is known as an adversative conjunction. An adversative conjunction. It is that... It is that but that is all important because everything turns on it. Now, I, had, I went to our media director, Michael, last night, and I said, help me to demonstrate this. Give me the first little piece up here. We know what a conjunction is. Uh, conjunction, junction, that's your... Okay, you watched that too. Okay, all right. It's connecting two things together. So what's an adversative conjunction? An adversive conjunction is taking two things that are adverse to each other, opposed to each other, and being the link between them, joining them together. This is our sinful condition. This is on this side of the adversative conjunction. Give me the next 
part of it, please. It's getting what we deserve because of our sinful nature, because of our propensity to, to turn away from God, to turn away from what pleases God, to allow our mouths to say things we should not say, to allow uh, our feet to take us places we should not go, and to do things we should not do. We, what we deserve in our sinful condition. Give me the next one. Here is that adversative conjunction. But even now, say it. One more time. But even now, what is this? That is repentance. We are called to this moment of, but even now, you are in this state. You are in this condition. We are as a people. But God says, but even now, come to me with repentance, which is a changed mind and a turned direction. Next screen. And that takes us to a right relationship. Keep going. God's blessing and favor. Which side of that do you want to be on? How many want to be on the Lord's side? That is as simple as I can possibly say it. This is our condition. There is the word but. But even now, that is the opportunity that we have to turn back to God to put us back in right relationship with him. Around here, we've often heard people use that little phrase, but God. How many have heard that phrase? But God. You know, we know what it means. Sometimes people go, well, what, what, is, what does that mean? What it means, it speaks of God's divine intervention. We've had a difficult situation. It looked impossible to us. But God. Or people will say, Pastor, I need a but God moment. We're in a difficult situation over here. But God, the adversative conjunction, will take us to the place of blessing and God's favor. That's ex exactly what they're, what they're saying to us. I am here to say this to you this morning, and if you hear not one other word I say, please hear this. If God had not said but in human history, the entire human race would have been lost. It all hinges upon this one little conjunction right here. If God had not said but, the entire race would have been lost. Yet God said, but, and called one man named Abraham out of Mesopotamia. And through Abraham's descendants, God began a salvation history in which the curse of sin would be turned into the blessing of God. You've read it. We're reading it now in our immersed Bible. But we know also that Abraham's descendants in Israel, they rebelled against God's purpose time and time and time again. And so the human race was left with the wages of death for its sin. However, God is so merciful. He is so compassionate. He so wants us in relationship that you know what? God once again said, but, but, but this time he said it on a cross on Golgotha and an empty tomb in the garden and the hope that he's given us, but even now, and the promise of new and eternal life were granted to us forever. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Come on, let the people rejoice! Therefore, repentance is a beautiful word. We tend to think of it as something negative. Repentance is a beautiful word. It is an opportunity. It is a privilege, the likes of which we've never had before, all because of one little tiny three-letter word, but. 
you were. But, and now you can be. This was your condition before. This is the state you were in. But God, who is rich in mercy and compassionate, slow to anger, said, no, I want to move you to this place over here. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever. But our reality, church, is this. It's still true that yet today, we will not accept that good news. And we still try to turn away from God's loving lordship. That's why violence walks our city streets today. And loneliness, loneliness sits in our living rooms. And blood pollutes the ground. And fears and hatreds haunt our loves. Yet God says, but, and promises us a kingdom of God in which mourning and crying and pain and death and hatred and evil will be done away with forever. Thus, when God says, but even now to us, here in Joel chapter 2, and God speaks directly in the first person, Through the prophet Joel in verses 12 and 13, God is signaling the possibility of a reversal of all of our sinful calamities. He's viewed our sinful calamities. He marshaled his troops, and we read it at the beginning of this message. But even now, in our situation, in our sin-filled and violent world, in whatever corner of evil we find ourselves... Even now, God can work transformation. Bless his name. These verses, 12, 13, and 14 of chapter 2 of Joel, they are telling us that if we will repent, if we will change our mind and turn from our wicked ways, we can escape that final judgment when a new kingdom is set up on the day of the Lord. And that is the message given us here in the book of Joel. That's the message given to Judah in the book of Joel. That its apostasy can be overcome. And that when the day of the Lord comes upon it, it can stand and endure. And Bethesda, that's the message to us, too, of the cross and resurrection. That by the sacrifice and victory of our Savior, we sang about it in worship this morning. Our apostasy from God can also be overcome. And we, too, can stand before the bar of God and be counted righteous. Isn't that unbelievable? Isn't that unbelievable? Can you put up verse 13 for me again, please? But the condition laid upon both Judah, back in Joel chapter 2, and upon us today, is that we rend or tear, depending upon what version you're reading, tear our hearts and not our garments. That's the condition. That's the terms. Tear your heart. In short, that means that repentance not be an empty show. Not something's just on the surface. No. Not something you just put on on the exterior. You can rip that off. But we are to tear our hearts. The sincere turning of our hearts in lives. Tearing of the garments in ancient Israel, as you know, was a sign of lamentation expressing exceptional emotion in times of grief or terror or misfortune. 
And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, repentance throughout the Bible has the meaning of turning around, walking in the opposite direction from how we have previously walked. So God here calls for that turning. But however, he says, but the turning is in your heart. It's in the heart. Throughout the scriptures, where is it? Tear your hearts or rend your hearts instead of your clothing. That's what, it, that's what it says to us. Throughout the scriptures, the heart is the seat of faith, equivalent in its functioning in, in Hebrew anthrop- anthropology to our brain. Everywhere the Old Testament appeals to our hearts, it says, love God with all of your hearts, reads Deuteronomy's central command. Write these words on your heart. Circumcise your hearts, Jeremiah proclaims. Get a new heart, commands Ezekiel. If the heart is centered on God, faith and obedience will follow. It's as simple as that. If the heart is centered on God, faith and obedience will follow. For as in the New Testament, it is what comes out of the heart that that determines the whole manner of life. Mark 7, 18 through 23. Therefore, we must be changed in our hearts if we would change our sinful lives to God. And that change is wrought in us by God, by God working in us to be sure. But listen, it is also a deliberate working of our own will, a determined taking of ourselves in hand, which means getting out of bed every morning and deciding then I'm going to be faithful today. It's every day getting up, few aches and pains as you're doing it. Yep. Got that. Check. That happens. But I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to decide today I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. Today I'm going to walk in ways that I know please him. Because Paul says this. Some of you are going to argue this point with me. I'm sure my inbox will be full in the morning as it is on most Monday mornings. As Paul says, we work out our own salvation. For God is at work in us to will and to work his good pleasure. God's work and ours. Both are necessary for salvation. Really? I thought salvation was free. It is. But according to this passage in Joel, and indeed throughout the scriptures, it is only because of the character of our God that we have the possibility of turning and transformation and finally standing in the day of the Lord. We can return to God from our apostasy only because God is merciful, he's compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. By the way, that is a, uh, that verse... That statement I just gave you from verse 13 is the creedal statement from Israel's tradition about God that is found a total of eight times in the Old Testament. God's mercy in verse 13 is expressed in the total unmerited favor that is bestowed upon the people. No, no, Dan, that's grace, isn't it? Unmerited favor, isn't that grace? Let me just tell you, grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin, and we don't even deserve the coin at all. Hello? Compassionate in that verse has the most most intimate love connected with it, like the love of a mother for the child of her womb. A compassion. Slow to get angry includes in its meaning God's patience, an incredible long-suffering patient with us, a constant refusal to give up on, on us. He refuses to give up and to consign us to... How many are thankful God refuses to give up on you? Should he have? 
Slow to get angry. Also means a yearning love to include us. His heart for us is so strong. We can't possibly imagine it. To include us. And he's filled with unfailing love. Signifies that loving faithfulness to his covenant with Israel that God steadfastly maintains. Even though Israel promised when the covenant was made at Mount Sinai, we will do everything the Lord has said. That's the promise they made. But they constantly broke the promise. But in the covenant relationship, God has promised to be Israel's God and he does not go back on his word. You know what that reminds me of, Jack? Reminds me of that verse you remind me of all, all, all the time. Though we are faithless, God remains faithful. We blow it all the time. But even our faithlessness, God remains faithful. And instead, when Israel deserts God and its relationship with him lies in, in shambles, God promises them a new covenant in which he will write his words on the walls of their heart. He will write his words on the people's heart so that they will remain faithful to him. And it is this new covenant that Jesus offers to his disciples and also to us at the Last Supper. We, we quote that passage every time we, we come to the table of the Lord. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's God's promise that he will be faithful to us. And our text says God is eager to relent and not punish. Are we still up here? He is eager to relent and not to punish. God is eager to have a change in his mind and a turning of his direction. Send those troops back that we're about to destroy them because I see God's people, their heart is turning to me. When we come before him, giving him our hearts, repenting before him, returning to him, look what this last verse says. Who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Perhaps you will be able to offer your grain and your wine to the Lord, your God, as before. You know what that means? God wants to restore your crops. Hello? All that stuff you lost? God wants to restore your crops. He wants to restore your crops of grain and make your vineyards fruitful again. But it all starts with our repentance. Changing our mind about any and everything that is not pleasing to the Lord, then with the decision of the will, turning about face and walking every day in the opposite direction of what we've been walking. Lord, I'm not happy with my mouth. I know it's not pleasing to you. I'm quick-lipped. I can be cutting with my words. I'm going to have a change of mind about how I speak to those in my family and those who are, I'm going to have a change and I'm going to turn in the opposite direction and I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning with a renewed commitment that I'm going to speak words of life. I'm going to speak words of comfort. I'm going to speak words of peace. I'm going to speak words of encouragement. I know that it's cute to be, uh, you know, to be clever and people will think, well, isn't he smart when I'm clever? Lord, my cutting words do not honor you. Let me give words of life and comfort and peace and encouragement. Lord, I'm not pleased with you fill in the blank. Because you know, if you're having that thought at all, and I pray we all are, that's because the Holy Spirit is bringing it to our minds. And because you know it's not pleasing to the Lord, this is the time to change your mind. This is the time to walk in the opposite direction.
The Lord will see you do it. The Lord will respond to you as you do it. And you will then experience a but even now moment like you have never had before. Someone say, bless the Lord. How many are ready for a but even now moment in your life? Would you stand to your feet, please?